you know, when you look at all these different people who have been marginalized and exiled, you know, they, we create food that is both the kind of thing you sit around and you, you know, enjoy when you when you don't have these moments of terror. But any other time, you got to keep it moving so then you can keep biting on your way to freedom. The best estimate is there are around 140,000 black Jews in the United States. And one of them is food historian Michael Twitty. He finds the best place for him to explore his identity is in the kitchen. Food, he writes, has been his primary lens for navigating his citizenship within the Jewish people and his birthright as a black man in America. Twitty's new book is called Kosher Soul, The Faith and Food Journey of an African-American Jew, which he calls an eclectic recipe file of diverse and complex peoplehood. Twitty is also the author of The Cooking Gene, a journey through African-American culinary history in the Old South, which won a James Beard Award. After the break, Michael joins us to talk about his new book, Tradition, Food, and Identity. I'm David Gura, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Introducing Group Sessions, a new BetterHelp therapy offering currently in pilot testing. Therapist Joy Bergheimer shares how finding a community of people with shared experiences can help clients become more comfortable with therapy. For quite some time, we have not normalized mental wellness, and a lot of our families would shame you when you would say that you were feeling depressed or you're feeling overwhelmed. If you have been told over and over again that basically you have a character flaw, if you're seeking therapy, that's going to be a reason that people don't want to go seek therapy. But actually being in group with other people and hearing them say a story that feels like it came right out of your book is huge. You're like, oh my gosh, this is not abnormal, right? And this person is further along in their journey than me. So now I know that therapy is something that can shift things for me. So really seeing their peers has been a huge shift for people accepting therapy for themselves. To get 10% off your first month of online therapy, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. You're listening to 1A. We're talking to Michael Twitty, author of Kosher Soul, The Faith and Food Journey of an African-American Jew. He joins us now. Let's start with what this book is and its title, Kosher Soul, two words, which you call quasi-ethnic terms. How do you define that word? What is kosher soul? So I, I guess it's less of a branding and it's more of a way of saying that, um, you know, in very simple terms, I'm black and I'm Jewish, mm. or at least I have elements of those two worlds, the Jewish diaspora and African Atlantic world. And they play a daily role in how I construct myself, um, especially in the kitchen through food, but also just through um, social outlook, intellect, etc. You describe yourself in the book as a border crosser, as a black Jew. We don't fit into boxes, you write. How has cooking, and more broadly, how has food helped you find that voice? Well, I mean, people, it's, it's about creating the unexpected. Hmm. I mean, the first time I was on um, TV as this persona, as a food personality, was with Andrew Zimmerman. I made him um, pastrami, collard green, spring rolls, which I call kosher uh-huh. soul rolls. And he ate every single one of them. And, you know, I realized that something was going on. I was I was trying to make an identity that through my the things I produced, that was not going to be something people were used to. And I didn't do it on purpose. I did it because it's what it felt right to me. 
So just, you know, you know, being, an, you know, it's about being an American. It's about being um, the kind of multicultural, intersectional person. Thank you, Dr. Kimberly, Kimberly Crenshaw, uh-huh. yeah. who just does what they do and feels natural about it. And it's not a gimmick. It's not a fusion. It's, it's just who you are. Can you describe that, that recipe that you mentioned that you made for Andrew Zimmern? What, what goes into it? Maybe how you came up with the recipe as well. So it's, it's to two things. I was in Charlotte, North Carolina at one point visiting, and there's a restaurant called Mertz, and they have a soul roll. Well, that's, that's actually a very common um, play in soul food or soul uh, chef establishments. It's like, what do, you, what do you want your soul roll? It just depends on what you want to do with it. It could be dessert. It could be savory. Huh. And then, then I was in um, Borough Park in Brooklyn. And I saw like a pastrami and cabbage spring roll. And I said, wait a minute, we got soul rolls <laughs> and we got pastrami and cabbage spring rolls. Why not do collard greens, pastrami and do the things that I know how to do? And this, it just says to me that, you know, when you look at all those cultures put together, you know, East Asian, Jewish, black and Southern, you, you're really looking at the people who really have created of the on-the-go food in America. You know, Michael Salamanov, the uh, well-known chef, famous chef out of Philadelphia at Zahav, he says that, you know, we invented, we we Jews invented the sandwich because we don't have time. (laughs) And I just thought to myself, you know, when you look at all these different people who have been marginalized and exiled, you know, we create food that is both the kind of thing you sit around and you, you know, enjoy when you when you don't have these moments of terror. But any other time, you got to keep it moving, so then you can keep biting on your way to freedom. The, the back of the book is a is a compendium of recipes, and uh, just picking up on what we were talking about, I wonder how much these come about by happenstance. You being at one restaurant or another, or meeting with uh, one cook or chef or, or another, or you kind of seeking out um, things that might work well together that pair these two traditions? I guess I'm saying, how deliberate is, is the process for you? Well, I'm glad you asked that because some of them are drawn from interviews with people. So, for example, Rivka Campbell, she um, is a Jamaican Jewish woman from Toronto, Canada. So, for her, like, kosherized Afro-Caribbean food is the norm. Or yam kugel and other recipes come from the traditions that uh, Mrs. Mildred Covert of late um, talked about. The, the re- recipes that were innovated when Black women were domestics in the homes of Ashkenazi Jews in the Deep South. And then there are other recipes that come out of, you know, friends of mine like Naftali, um, who is Ghanaian, American, and Jewish. So he makes shator, which is traditionally made with shrimp paste. But he makes it with miso and other things to um, to um, substitute those things that aren't kosher. So it's a really it's a blend of things that I came up with, but a lot of things that were just drawn from people's lived experience. And, you know, Jews from Africa, Jews from the Caribbean, Jews from Brazil, Jews from Cape Verde, Jews from the American South and sort of all blended together. And of course, there's menus from like Juneteenth and Kwanzaa and Sigit, which is an Ethiopian Jewish holiday. And there's also Hanukkah, Shabbat, Pesach, all the usual stuff. And all of those things and more some and less can mean the sacred year of a black Jewish person. 
or those around them. So much of this book is about the historical parallelism uh, of black people and Jewish people. Uh, we're surrounded, you write, by the miracle of why we are still here despite the many attempts to annihilate our annoying stubbornness, itself a consequence of courage and married to humor. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a bit about that, uh, how these sort of similar histories have shaped uh, both the communities, yes, but also food and the role of food uh, in these cultures. Sure. I mean, we're survivors. And I mean, I mean that also as a gay man. I mean, people try to people look at me, you know, really funny and they go, well, what does being gay have to do with being Jewish, being black? And I said, have you ever seen Broadway before? I mean, come on now. American popular culture is based on these people who were determined to laugh, determined to create art, determined to, you know, say we exist and establish um, narratives of where they've been. Um, and I'm not in that world, but in the food world, I mean, the modern food world was shaped by um, LGBTQ people, um, but also it's had its fair share of people who um, were Jewish and also can, undoubtedly shaped by the hands of the black cook. So what, what ingredients are in this? Number one is narrative, memory, history, um, humor is a huge thing, satire, irony, um, getting the best of one's enemy, um, surviving to make another day. Um, just this, this idea that frugality isn't about being cheap with the food. Mm. Frugality means that the use of the, the animal, the use of all the ingredients means that you gotta, you gotta make it to the next day, you gotta survive, you have to overcome. So you create these things that seem like plebeian peasant food, but they're really delicacies. And it's not about the scraps, that narrative is kind of tired. It's really about just being useful and being very intelligent. And also the idea that these aunties and these bubbies, they really loved us. They, they gave us, they gave us something that um, is far more powerful than the oppressions we faced. Mm. They gave us the idea that, hey, I love you. You're meant to be here. We're meant to be here. And the tradition that I'm giving you is going to help you and your children, and your children, children to make it to the next day. There's a, there's a shared mood you write at one point uh, in these two cultures. I wonder if you could expound upon that a little bit. That's, that stuck with me. A shared mood. Hmm. You know, it's like, it's like this. You, you walk into a, a uh, uh, this, the table space of blacks and Jews, and you get a couple different things. One of which is, we're going to talk about the next meal we're going to have. You know, it's like, oh, well, we're already eating. That doesn't matter. What's next? And then on top of that, <laughs> when you're in the kitchen before this happens, you know, inevitably something may not come out right. And we're the only two groups that go, eat this. It's terrible. And I'm like, wait a minute, but it's nasty. I don't care. It's really nasty. You got to eat this. And I'm like, why do we have to eat our oppression? My God, what's wrong with you? And then we do these, these insane things like we make gefilte fish edible by forcing someone to eat horseradish. But the horseradish is the good part, right? The gefilte <laughs> fish isn't. And the chitlins aren't the good part. The hot, hot sauce is. But if you just ate hot sauce or horseradish, it'd be mishiga. So the, we, we invented these rabbinic legal fictions called gefilte fish and chitlins, which are awful, to, you know, to, to eat so you can eat the good stuff. I mean, it's just, it, there's all these little, 
the more I, the more I live this, the more little tricks and things I learn about us that are uncomfortable but fun. And, and I, I will say this really quickly: we we're exhausting people. We are absolutely annoying, exhausting people. But I love us to death. We heard from 1A guest host Celeste Headley. She tweets, My grandfather was black from Mississippi and Arkansas. My grandmother was Jewish. And for me, that meant I sometimes ate collard greens and latkes. Michael, I, I have to ask you about the role that collard greens play in your cooking today. I imagine, uh, I know it's on your, your, your Seder plate, but it's, um, it's a through line through a lot of the recipes that you make. Oh, yeah, because they're so ubiquitous and useful and healthy. Mm. Um, the collard greens and latkes, I saw that yesterday and I was like, Hmm, collard green latke sandwich. Yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> you know that's already a thing in North Carolina with the lumbee. They make a hot water cornbread and, and collard green sandwich that they sell during their powwow. And the lumbee are not shy about having those um, African um, influences and roots as well as Native American their Native American core. So I have collard green kreplach, collard green in the kosher soul rolls. I make kosher soul collards, kosher, uh, collard green lasagna, because, you know, we don't do meat in our lasagna with meat and cheese. We don't do that. So we do vegetarian or, you know, fake cheese and real meats, which is much rarer. Um, so I guess the collard green is like this symbol of continuity, you know, between Africa and America. It's a Eurasian plant. But if you go, you've ever been to West Africa, you know that leafy green is lifeblood to the diet and the collard green in the American South replaced that among others, turnip greens, mustard greens, poke salad, etc. So it's a way of keeping all of that together. The, uh, the best estimates are there are around 140,000 black Jews in the U S uh, a fairly close knit community of thousands upon thousands. You write uh, in the book and you know that being black and being Jewish is not an anomaly or, or a rare thing. You want people to know that. What does it mean to live at the intersection of those two identities in America today? It means constantly surprising people, and mm. I don't really know why. Um, you know, we did lose a lot of our population, in a sense, during the aftermath of the civil rights movement. A lot of these young people who were very idealistic, met each other, fell in love, had children. The problem was... The two of the two communities, it was the black community that absorbed and created most of the identity of those children. So whether they had a Jewish father, Jewish mother became immaterial. The it became basically white black child as opposed to a Jewish child. And of those children that were logically Jewish, in other words, would have been accepted because they had a Jewish mother. Many of them um, found a lot of isolation and shame and exile from the community. So there were people who were, you know, could have very well been, you know, having a, a bar mitzvah next to the next Drake or, you know, David Diggs, but didn't because they were on those the kind of relationships were not accepted. So I grew up with a lot of kids who, you know, when I was officially part of the community and everything was all good, they came to, you know, several of my friends came to my mom first uh, Aliyah at the Torah. And they're all like, yeah, we're Jewish too. I'm like, what? How come you never told me? And they said, because we are, we, you know, I grew up in a family where those relationships were very fraught. So I didn't, so I didn't accept that part of me. So I hear I had, I was, I had my, my first Torah reading 
I had, you know, several African-American friends there and every single one was Jewish. And I didn't know that. Hmm. I just thought of them as biracial or as mixed. But they basically had wanted nothing to do with something that had, you know, they felt rejection from. And I felt very sad about that. But also we do have a history of Jews who um, have been black and born Jewish for generation upon generation upon generation. We have Jews who happily talk about being Jews by choice, you know, converting to Judaism. We have folks who are um, biracial and mixed by their own description. And, you know, you find people always asking for your pedigree. And that can be really exhausting because who else has to do that? Do, you, do, do, does people, do people go up to black Christians and go, hi, black Christian. So how did you become Christian? I mean, or hi, black Muslim. I mean, they don't because they don't feel they, they should. But I, inevitably, unless I tell people, please don't do that ahead of time, I get this. So were you born Jewish? It's always said the same way, too. Are you born Jewish or were you raised Jewish? Or did you convert to Judaism? And so if I'm really spicy and I don't like them and I'm not trying to sell a book in it, um, <laughs> I will literally go. So where were you conceived if you're born Jewish? Um, can you tell me more about the conception process? Because I'm really, really interested. I want to know all about it. Because if you want to know all about my so-called conversion process, we can get all up in your, your conception process. And nine, nine times out of ten, they get it that they probably should have asked the question in the first place. We'll hear more in a moment here on 1A. Back to our guest now, Michael Twitty. His new book is called Kosher Soul, The Faith and Food Journey of an African-American Jew. And Michael, I'd love for you just to describe this book to our listeners. I mentioned there are recipes in the back, but you refer to it as bricolage. There are kind of dialogues that you have with friends, with other black Jews throughout the book, uh, your reflections as well. Just describe it, if you would, how you, you entered into this process and what the book looks like. So, you know, you you want to write everything. You want to put everything in the sandwich, the whole kitchen sink. Um, I'm not a cookbook guy. I use recipes as evidence. I use recipes to document tradition. I don't really use them as a how-to. I could care less. And another thing is that people, everybody cooks differently. Mm. And if you know how to cook, or if you have your own way of cooking, then my recipes are just like any other recipe. They're just a guide. They're not special. Um, what you do to them is special. But the other part of it is that I think with terms of food writing, we don't we, we think we have all the answers. We think of all the stories. We really don't, especially when it comes to um, African-Americans and other people of color, people of African descent. We don't you know, food plays a very important role in our culture. But if you ask most people what that was, they give you the same tired kind of cliches and platitudes. They don't really know. It's like um, one, a great example of if I could have more of that would be Richard Wright hmm. and black boy, you know, which, you know, is his auto part of his autobiography with American hunger. And there's a scene in the book where he talks about, you know, as the poor sharecropping family having like the preacher over for dinner and the preacher's devouring this small chicken that they've prepared for the dinner. And he's crying because he's like hungry and he wants to have some and, he gets in trouble, has to go to bed hungry because he's protesting. The, the preacher's eating it all up. And there's something to that. You know, the fact we call the chicken the preacher's bird or that, you know, he was in Mississippi or this was a Sunday dinner. I mean, there's all these little 
uh, cultural details that we think we have all the notes to, but we really don't. And so we rely heavily on Edna Lewis. We rely heavily on Averta May Grosner and other and Tazaki Shangi and other people to tell us all about this immense food culture that is really, really big and needs a lot of voices and democracy. So for me, interviewing you know everybody from other African American Jews to Jews who are identify as white or Ashkenazi, like um, Mark Steiner. There's a really beautiful. He told me these stories years ago, and I asked him to repeat them when I, you know, tell him met him for Kosher Soul, and I said, "Tell me about, you know, your friend Edwin you grew up with," and they basically integrated a Boy Scout troop in Baltimore when Baltimore was thoroughly segregated, and um, he talks about how he and his young friend exchanged, um, you know, dinner. He, he had two thick lamb chops, and Edwin has two. Uh, SK hot dogs, and he had never seen or had one before. So just the scene of these two young men, you know, uh, one one black and Christian, one Jewish and white, exchanging a meal and talking about how he and his mother brought him to Paul's restaurant in Baltimore um, during Jim Crow and integrated the restaurant in an instant. There's something there's something about those little histories that often get missed. That's where the real changing in America is. It's not just in the in the big people and the big stories and speeches. It's in moments like, hey, you're going to serve my son and his friend. And there's just no, there's no, nothing else is going to change except for Jim Crow is going to die today. And it's going to die with a young, um, with two heroes, one black, one Jewish. Michael, I described you as a, as a food historian, and I'd love to dig into that a little bit more, uh, just sort of the state of this history and how much the work that you're doing is uncovering that history or writing that history. I think that you write at one point in the book that you're, you're trying to leave a legacy. You're trying to, to leave or pave a trail for, for future generations. What's, what's the state uh, of the history, the food history that, that you're wrestling with and dealing with in this book? I mean, it's a mosaic. It's a broken mosaic. You can see some of the parts, how they fit together. But the reality is that we don't know enough. You know, um, people have pe- people don't think about the fact that there were Jews who were Afri- of African descent in, in Renaissance Europe or in Suriname or in Brazil um, or in Charleston, South Carolina or early New York. So you have to ask the question, if you have black people who are Jewish or black people who are working for Jewish families as enslaved people in kitchens and no kashrut. What does that look like? <laughs> you know, what does, you know, what does it look like to hear from the other side of the door? Now we are slaves next year. We, 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 may we be free because it's Passover. You know, what does it mean to have families, um, during the Civil War, before the Civil War, who were Jewish and abolitionists who adopted black children. I mean, there's a, there's an there's so many little these, oh my gosh, that was a thing, <laughs> moments that we don't address. You know, I mean, I, as the first time we meet an African-American Jew in, on American soil by documentation is Solomon. And he's called, described as Solomon the Mulatto Jew. And you know what that is? It's a police report. Hmm. He's profiled for profaning the Christian Sabbath by walking about on a Sunday. How deep is that? That there are all these layers of our own 
contemporary issues with also the the idea of him being exotic and othered, but also the fact that this man has to eat. He has to eat, sleep, live, have a roof over his head, and exist, and probably exist in a space where people are going to constantly question his identity too. So for me, there's like so much more work to be done, but the one thing I can do is capture the contemporary lives of people around me and leave a uh, leave a ginger bridge rail for everybody else to kind of connect the dots. You've mentioned a couple of times uh, sort of the influence that Southern Black domestic workers and chefs have had on Jewish cooking from that region. And I know you've talked with Marcy Cohen-Ferris of, of UNC, who's dug into this a lot. And um, I wonder if you could just explain what that dialogue was like, uh, what you learned from her, and indeed how uh, these Southern Black domestic workers did, did shape cooking, uh, yes, in the South, but, but across the country as we saw the Great Migration. So there's, it's a, it's a, it's an, not quite a two-way street, mm. but sort of, I mean, one of the places where Black folks would encounter a certain level of integrated eating experience would be the Jewish deli and bakery. Um, when those same families were in Cincinnati, were in New York, were in Boston, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, other places, L.A., at the same time, Jews who were in the Deep South from about the time of the Civil War onward, um, one of the ways they assimilated into the culture and performed Southerness was eating Southern food and inviting people over to have Southern food. Well, who's going to prepare that? <laughs> you know, enslaved and formerly enslaved African-Americans. And then the next level was preparing food that made them feel both at home as Jews, but also at home as Southerners. So the the matzo meal fried chicken, the black eyed pea and kishka, all those things they sound they sound novel, but the reality was they were doing the same thing that other southern communities were doing. I mean, when you were in Missis the Mississippi Delta, and you were Chinese American, you may not have had the freshwater crabs and bok choy, but you had collard greens and crawfish, <laughs> and you did what you had to do. And the same thing goes with making kosher soul food in the in the South as well. So there were all these communities that were sort of like taking the different elements of what was around them and performing Southerness. And within a generation or two, they were no longer wed to strict um, adherence to the traditions they came with. And it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't uncommon for a Jewish family from Savannah, Georgia, for example, to have okra soup and rice and um, fried chicken and, and biscuit, a, a challah made out of biscuit dough. Hmm as their Shabbat dinner. In fact, and I, I met one, one gentleman who was who in Savannah at Mikvah Israel. Two weeks later, I go to, to Maine, and I met a woman who, was, who had relocated to Maine many years ago, but was from Savannah and Jewish, and described the exact same Shabbat meal, Wow! even though they did not know each other. <laughs> but the one thing they did have in common was they had a Black woman in that home who did the cooking, <laughs> and the food was kosher. Kathleen emailing, the Irish, also an oppressed culture, are good at using every piece of the animal and making lots of stews, which cook all day and help heat the house. WZ tweeting, being from upstate New York, my family is used to being self-sustainable and living off the land. We eat venison and fish. I feel like I lost some of that identity moving out to the Midwest. And here's a message we received from KB, who told us about the recipe that reminds her of her family. 
my recipe for Southern Baked Mac and Cheese, which is a combination of my mother's recipe and my grandmother's. I used the best elements of both and then added a little meat to them. I did the same thing with my recipe for dressing for the holidays. I used the best of both of them because they're the best two cooks I know. And I added a little meat and a little fresher, more modern flavors to them. And it really makes me feel good and connected with my family. Thank you for sharing that, KB. This is um, a book, Michael, that is about finding family and understanding family and family kind of broadly uh, construed. Could you talk about that enterprise? We've talked about sort of the historical aspect of, of this, uh, identifying legacy and, and building legacy. Um, one of your goals you state pretty early on is just using food as a means by which you can find family and expand family. So one of the words that I introduced very early is mishpacha. Mm or mishpacha, and then of course there's the black southern idea of kinfolk, and then there's the LGBTQ idea of family. Family is a double entendre term, meaning, you know, is is someone family, are they gay? Are they queer? So you have these three terms that are kind of related, and and they all mean, are we connected? Are we we kin to each other? Are we family? Are 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 we Lundsman? Are we from the same place? And that is a way to make a stranger into someone very familiar very quickly because you needed to. That was another form of survival training for us. Finding out who are the, what, what, did, what did Mr. Rogers say? Who are the helpers? Uh-huh. Look for the helpers. You know? yeah. So that's what it is. So for me, the cooking gene was about tracing my blood roots, my, my family from, from West Africa, Central Africa to America from slavery to freedom and meeting my ancestors and, and, and going to their tables to find out how what they ate influenced what I eat. Um, and also understanding how people today, white, black, et cetera, are connected to these same lines. Kosher soul is about a much broader sense of family. And of course, one of the things that, I'm, that I just kind of stumbled on, I'm really proud of, is that there's a moment towards the end of the book where I'm talking to white Southerners mm-hmm. who grew up and Protestant and Catholic traditions who became Jewish. I'm talking to a black Muslim chef from Philadelphia and I'm talking to other Jews of color. And that sense of family, Southerness, um, and not just Southerness, but but African diaspora, African Atlantic influence, Atlantic influence cooking in the South. No matter what our background or color or phenotype, all bound us together. A, a same, a very similar sensibility about nature, seasonality, food types, flavor, tradition, recalling your ancestors, and you know, all we could have all sat down at the same table, give or take, you know, and had the same kind of menu and been mm-hmm. very happy. And it just showed me that in all of this world of you know a lot of divisiveness and you know idea that we're all in bubbles and boxes. Um, and don't, don't don't get me wrong, I do believe in some boundaries. We have to have them. It's like individuals have to have boundaries. But the idea that all these very different people could come together if, if, if possible and share a meal and share tradition and be, feel very much at home and feel very much that we were family to each other hmm. is, was very important to me. Michael, I'm going to ask you about a chapter in this book called Keshet, which uh, you explained means rainbow. And this is a, a fairly short 
chapter and you write you're fortunate to have so much to draw on to create yourself as a queer Jewish man of color. Um, and in that chapter, you kind of tease your, your next project. You're working on a book about being uh, queer in the kitchen. What, what more can you tell us about that? I think you admit in that chapter that you, you don't have the, the, the space to go into it in, in this book. But as you um, give us this sense of your identity in, in, in a holistic whole sense, um, what more can you tell us about sort of the, the process that you are in now, the project that you're, you're entering in now, writing that third part of this trilogy? A lot of it's excavation, personal excavation, vulnerability. So I'm 45 years old now. I came out when I was 16 years old in high school in the school newspaper. Hmm. I wanted to write more in Kosher Soul, but <laughs> I felt that some of the things that I wanted to write about were extremely personal. I'll, I'll confess, some, sometimes sexual. Hmm. And I felt that I might alienate certain people by being, you know, that, okay, I'm here. <laughs> What's up? And maybe I should save that for a book that focused more on that part of my identity. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's going to be about being queer in the kitchen, what that has meant, especially for gay men. Um, so, yeah, we'll see what happens. That's food historian Michael Twitty, author of the book Kosher Soul, The Faith and Food Journey of an African-American Jew. He also wrote The Cooking Gene, a journey through African-American culinary history in the Old South. Today's producer is Avery J.C. Kleinman. This program comes to you from WAMU, which is part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm David Gura. This is 1A.